Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. In this episode, I'll be speaking with MPP Lisa Gretzky, representing Windsor West of the NDP party, and is the critic of community and social services. In July, she had tabled a motion, the Essential Caregiver Strategy, and then in September brought forth a bill to enact the More Than a Visitor Act, Bill 203, which has passed second reading by all parties and now currently in standing committee. We will be discussing Bill 203, so let's have a listen. So I just wanted to um, thank you so much, uh, MPP Lisa Gretzky, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles to further now talk about your Bill 203, uh, which was initially a motion that you had uh, presented to uh, Queen's Park back on July 20th of this year. So can we, uh, I'll just get you just to go through that as to how it became a motion when it was presented into into Queen's Park back in September, and then it went from first reading to second reading to where it is right now. So the floor is yours. Sure, thank you. So um, back in July, I had tabled a motion um, around caregiver access and ensuring that residents in or patients in long-term care, in hospitals, in retirement homes, uh, group homes for individuals with developmental or intellectual disabilities, um, enshrining the rights of those of those residents to have access to their designated caregivers. So in most cases, that would be a family member. In some cases, it's someone who's close to them and, and basically a family member. Um, so with the very tight timelines that we had, because we were sitting during the summer, which is unusual um, for the house to be sitting at that time, we had a really tight timeline um, to try and get something tabled, which is why you know, you have to go through this whole drafting process through the legislature um, and that can, and, and a translation. And so um, we were hitting a, a deadline. And so that's why I decided to do a motion. A motion was just a lot faster um, to, to, to get drafted and tabled. So we did that. And that was to start the conversation with the government um, around caregiver access and what that would look like and how to do that uh, safely and in a meaningful way. Because what we had seen is across the province, uh, residents in congregate care settings were being denied access uh, to their essential caregivers, their designated caregivers, um, and they were doing window visits and, and, and video chats and things like that. And that is not appropriate and meaningful access for everyone. Um, you really have to look at it from the needs of that particular individual. So that started the conversation throughout the province, but also with the government. Uh, and then we had more time to actually develop the, the actual bill, to go through that process, to talk to uh, the families that, that were affected by the, the lockdowns across the province, uh, talk to some of the congregate care operators, uh, talk to experts in the various sectors that are affected in healthcare and developmental services, um, and, and to talk to different advocates and really um, kind of hone in on um, the different sectors and the needs of the individuals within those sectors so that when we were bringing the bill forward, it reflected the different needs of each individual within those sectors. Um, and it actually came together fairly quickly once we were, we were able to, to get the ball rolling again. Um, and so I tabled it. Uh, it was a few weeks ago. I tabled it. Um, and the same week it went to second reading. I had my debate date. Um, and it went to second reading. And we had unanimous support. Um, so every every party voted in favor of it going to uh, committee. So passing second reading is a huge hurdle. Um, 
But the next step is to get the government who has their majority government, the conservatives control the committees as well, and what gets called the committee. So the next step really is to keep the pressure on um, on the conservative government in, in order to get them to call the bill to committee to, um, you know, for their opportunity to discuss the bill, talk about any amendments that somebody might um, want to see made, to talk to uh, the residents and the individuals within these congregate care settings, talk to their, their caregivers, um, and talk to all those experts that we talk to um, and, and have them part of that um, that deeper discussion, um, and then ultimately to get it back into the House for third reading um, and to, to get it through third reading debate and to get it supported by all parties again. In and then if that is to happen, then it would receive royal assent and become law immediately. And all of the principles laid out within the More Than a Visitor Act around uh, who, who should be at the table um, developing the strategy and kind of what the, the bones of the strategy should look like um, so once, once it passes and gets royal assent, that's when that work actually uh, begins to happen. And it's really, uh, really important as we're going into the second wave. I think we're seeing now, um, it's really kind of put that exclamation point on the importance of having this caregiver strategy um, as we're seeing more homes, more congregate care settings across the province who are still openly interpreting the guidance the government has put out um, the government will say it's directive. It's not directive. It is simply guidance. Yeah. Uh, there are plenty of congregate care settings across the province that are still denying residents access to their uh, designated caregivers um, or, or meaningful access. But in some cases, there is no access at all. Um, and that's becoming more and more common as we go into the second wave. So like I said, this really has put the exclamation point on on. Um, how important it is that this bill get passed right away um, and that strategy, all those voices come to the table and the strategy is developed and implemented quickly. Yes, absolutely, because I know that you had mentioned that, I mean, there's definitely a lot more that has happened since July from now. Uh, the government has taken pieces of your motion and kind of put them through in terms of new changes to the visitor rules, which we saw at the end of August into September, but still it's not um, concrete enough. There's still availability for the congregate settings to interpret it the way that they are. Even the latest change on October the 7th, there's still um, you know, confusion based on all of that um, as to what is happening and going on through um, all of this caregiver strategy as well. And, and I, I guess, what are you hearing back from the family members as well about all of these additional changes since July till now? Well, the families were were um, excited, frankly, um, to see that the government in their recent guidance was using um, language that was based around the motion that we had that that I had tabled, um, the motion that they helped develop, that these families had helped develop, um, and that's really an important piece to highlight is that th this wasn't just me. Um, coming up with a motion or with a bill. This was through a lot of consultation and hearing from a lot of families across the province. Um, so really the motion and the bill are, are their work um, with, with just me being the one who was able to deliver it to the legislature. Um, so they were excited to hear uh, some change in language in the guidance, but they also recognize that it is just guidance. This, these are not concrete steps that the government has taken. There are no enforcement measures 
uh, in place to ensure that residents still have that um, that access and that it's appropriate and meaningful access. Um, as I said, there are congregate care settings across the province who, even with updated guidance, um, still have not allowed um, their their residents to have access to their to their caregivers to their designated caregivers. So there was there was certainly excitement that at least the the government had chosen uh, language and had mimicked some of the language that we were using in the motion and then the bill, um, but also recognition that it didn't go far enough. It has to be uh, a legislative solution to what is going on now. Um, and that part of, of what was in the language was addressing the shortages in staffing, um, ensuring that the staff have full-time hours, um, that they're not having to bounce from home to home to home to try and cobble together um, an income that they can they can keep a roof over their head and put food on their table. Um, language around um, training and uh, and providing enough PPE for everyone within the congregate care settings because there are still congregate care settings that do not have um, enough PPE for their staff and that is simply unacceptable. Um, and it talks about the government. Uh, stepping up and actually ensuring that there is that something we've been calling for 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 many years and and my colleague Therese Armstrong has tabled the bill yet again the, the time to care act calling for a legislated minimum standard of four hours of hands-on care for individuals in long-term care so those pieces are are all worked into um into the bill and we're in the motion as well as well as ensuring that we have the voice of residents that we have the voice of the caregivers that we have the voice of the workers in these congregate care settings at the table developing this strategy with the government then coming to the table and ensuring that the funding um, and the supports are in place to make this happen and with this guidance that's not happening the government is still um, shirking its responsibility um, and ultimately putting it onto these individual um, congregate care um, uh, operators to, to try and fill in, in gaps. And for the ones that, um, because I will tell you that some families believe that some of these, these homes um, are purposely interpreting the guidance in order to keep uh, caregivers out um, and, and are doing so because they don't want the caregivers to see just how short-staffed and what the conditions are within these homes. Um, and if that's the case, um, then that's really shameful and the government needs to be stepping up. They know what the problems are in long-term care and in other congregate care settings. This is not new. It's only been um, really exacerbated by, by the pandemic. Um, there have been lots of studies, lots of reports, lots of people have been speaking out for years. Um, and so the government really needs to step up and ensure that there's uh, not only the, the resources to ensure that these essential caregivers are integrated into the home safely um, and in a meaningful way, but also that there's enforcement, that when we do have homes that are not following directives, when we have homes that are not providing staff or visitors with PPE, um, when, when they're using um, workers, uh, keeping them part-time just so they don't have to pay them benefits or give them sick days, um, that the government really needs to, to be much stronger and be enforcing um, the minimum standards of care, um, the staffing levels and that kind of thing. 
for these workers. So the families were, again, they were happy uh, initially that the, there was movement. There absolutely was movement. I will recognize that. Um, it just has not gone far enough. No, but I, I, I and I do appreciate that, but I, I just want to go through in terms of your act because it actually has a lot of other information because you did mention in terms of this yes, the congregate care settings yes that includes long-term care it includes retirement homes it includes as well even hospice it includes residential it includes um, housing providers assisted living um, children in custody so it is a very um, broad and um, all of these uh, sectors and areas are definitely impacted during this pandemic as well um, your the the act as well provides for the fact that um i guess after it becomes passes law that five years afterwards that's when it gets re-looked at in terms of the strategy is that correct um so that family members everybody that was part of that uh, decision or the stakeholder is back again to relook at um at everything to make sure that it's everything is in accordance to the way that it should be. Is that correct? Yeah. So there has to be, as part of the the, the bill, um, there has to be an interim strategy uh, right away um, that, that that the government brings forward. So there has to be an interim strategy, um, and then um, within the first year, there has to be um, the the more fulsome strategy in place, and then every five years. Um, it gets reviewed. And it won't necessarily be the same people coming back to the table, um, like those specific individuals, but it still has to be um, representatives from each group of people that have been um, recognized and named in the bill. So again, that would be the residents, that would be uh, their caregivers, um, those that work in the sector, the, the actual frontline workers and experts in the various um, different settings. It's really important that the strategy um, doesn't go stagnant or go stale, that it's it's updated to ensure that um, whatever is going on in the province at the time that the strategy is updated and reflects what's going on in the province at the time. And that has to be driven not by politicians yeah. um, who are really, you know, separated from um, from the realities within, within uh, these different settings. Um, and also sometimes it's very political decisions that are being made, not necessarily... Um, being made for the right reasons. So it's really important that we have um, the voice of the people that are actually affected by government policies at the table, helping drive the policy and 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 having that as part of the strategy. Um, and then whichever government uh, we have, it could be any party that is government at that time would then be compelled to uh, implement the updated strategy and ensure that all the funding or supports are in place in order to meet the, the needs of the, or the requirements, I should say, of the strategy. And um, I think it's important to point out too, is this is not just a, prob uh, a problem here in Ontario. Um, we're seeing this across the world right now. Um, I had a, a, a Michigan State Senator reach out to me for a conversation because he wants to bring forward similar legislation in Michigan because their caregivers, um, they're the, the residents in congregate care and not having access to their caregivers. Um, my, my bill was actually recently raised in the Scottish Parliament um, by a member of the Scottish Labour Party, Monica Lennon, um, because they're debating similar legislation and she wants to see um, our bill, my bill. Um, no, I'm going to say our bill because it was our bill. Yeah. As I said, it was led by 
uh, by the people affected by it who really led this process. And so, um, but she was using, uh, using our bill as a model for what could happen in England. I've had people in, in the UK, uh, in British Columbia. This is, this is going on across the, the world. Um, and people are recognizing that um, study after study and expert after expert has come forward and talked about the, uh, the harm and in some case irreversible harm that is being done to the residents in these various settings by them not having access to their caregivers, um, the really harmful impact, the emotional, physical, and mental impact that this is having on residents in congregate care. Isolation um, can be a, a devastating thing. Um, and so it's nice to see that this is a conversation that's happening worldwide as we go through this pandemic together. Um, we have, a, as a province, um, have an opportunity to be the, the leaders on this. Yeah. To set a precedent um, for other other uh, jurisdictions, other countries, um, to to step up and do the same thing, um, and I would really uh, be very disappointed. And that's putting it lightly uh, to see the Ford Conservatives not take the opportunity to to um, to implement Bill Two Hundred Three, the More Than a Visitor Act, um, and and be the example. Um, for other jurisdictions around the world. And in the meantime, um, more, probably most important, no, not probably, most importantly, um, to really benefit um, the, the residents in these different settings as well as their families and yeah. the, the professionals that are doing their very best to support them at this time. Um, but those those professionals, the PSWs, the nurses, the doctors, um, everyone that works in these congregate care settings um, do the best they can, but they recognize that the care that they provide is, is um, not the same as what a family member or someone close to that individual um, can provide. They just can't provide that same emotional support. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree. And it's great to see that, yes, these are universal truths, not just within this province, but pretty much across the world as to what is happening uh, during this pandemic, as well as the fact that um, the person that's decide, uh, that's been noted as being the designated caregiver is as well under the Substitute Decision Maker Act, which is great because um, a lot of these times in the congregate care centers, sometimes that final decision is on the power of attorney. So it's good to know that at least the substitute decision maker can be able to as well be, make those decisions to be there and to be acknowledged under the Caregiver Act. So I think that's very important because a lot of families don't have, let's say, that type of designation for POA, for person, you know, power of attorney, for health uh, reasons um, as well to be recognized because sometimes the facilities don't recognize the um, substitute decision maker. Some, they run into yeah. some challenges, right? Yeah. So, and I think, I think the important piece about that too is, is, is the bill really focuses on the rights of that individual that's receiving care or supports or services um, that, that they have the right to, to designate um, a caregiver, someone who, who has access to them and, and also to decide how much that person is involved in, in the day-to-day decision-making or support. So that person doesn't, doesn't replace 
someone who has um, guardianship or is a power of attorney, um, that that still stays in place. That is a legal standing. But uh, recognizing that sometimes the power of attorney or someone who has guardianship um, is not physically able to be to be going to that particular home, to that person's particular home. Um, and so that person has the right, um, that individual or their power of attorney or, or um, substitute decision maker, uh, guardian, uh, guardian um, can designate someone who can, who can do that extra um, to get in and, and provide that extra care and help make some of those decisions. And the individual has the right to revoke that at any point yeah. in time. Um, so it could be, you know, if it was my mom, if I don't have power of attorney, she could say that I am, I am her designated caregiver. And today she wants me to be in her room when they're having conversations with the doctors or the nurses about her care, um, and her care plan. Um, but tomorrow she may decide that they're having a conversation. She doesn't want me to be a part of, and that's her right to make that decision. Um, so I think that that really is an important piece. And and just to add to what you said, especially within developmental services, yeah. um, once they, once an individual with a developmental or intellectual disability turns 18, they kind of fall off this cliff. Not only do they lose their funding and supports um, and have to apply um, for a different program and oftentimes wait a very long time for approval um, and go through a, a terribly personal um uh, you know, process for that to happen, a situation that most people wouldn't have to go through um, and shouldn't. Um, but they also, while, while their parents are expected to still provide care and support for them, they don't really have a legal standing to be doing that and could be excluded should that now adult go into a hospital or whatever. They could, they could be excluded from those conversations. Um, and many of these families don't have the financial means to be going through a legal process um, to become, uh, to get power of attorney. Um, the people that they care for, their, their, their now adult child may not have the capacity to be able to uh, designate someone. Um, and the family doesn't have the money to go through a process to get the designation themselves um, to become guardians. And so, again, those, the, those um, individuals with the disability kind of fall off this this cliff of, of care and support um, but this would this would give them that that opportunity it's defined in the bill that it's yeah. someone who has provides um, prolonged or significant support to someone um, and I think that mom and dad or a sister or a brother um, or you know just a, a friend who provides that that significant support to someone with a di disability should be recognized, even if that particular individual can't um, physically um, verbalize that or if they can't put that in, in writing, um, it still needs to be recognized that that person plays a significant role in that, in that individual's life. So, um, and that language came about from talking to families that are affected um, talking to the the individuals um, themselves that are affected and talking to um, different organizations that um, represent individuals with disabilities, um, individuals, uh, you know, like legal clinics and things that, that specialize in seniors uh, care and that kind of thing. All of that came from them, um, that, that specific language. It was easy to come up with the, you know, to, to say, this is what I think should happen. Yeah. Um, but they really led the charge in ensuring that the language in the bill reflected that.
Yes, absolutely. Because I know with my family member, they definitely would fall under that category. And as the substitute decision maker, it was very challenging within a long-term care setting to be able to be recognized and to be able to be heard as well, to be able to champion for that particular individual. And the other thing in the Act is it indicates as well that um, these designated caregivers um, still need to go into the congregate settings, whether it's an outbreak or not, and to be safely integrated within going into, um, if it is a crisis emergency or just like we are right now in a pandemic, that if there is an outbreak, they are still allowed and still can be able to go in to be able to continue that support as well. Yes, and that's one of the provisions. Again, I, I didn't uh, presuppose what the strategy itself would look like. We just laid the framework out of, of what it looks like, um, kind of the, the bones of it to be built on. Um, but that was an important piece. And the government has put out in their guidance that, um, that specifically to long-term care, that these designated caregivers would be let in during a pandemic, but that is not the reality on the yes. ground. There are many families who are saying that um, homes that are in outbreak are, are denying them any access. There are many homes that aren't in outbreak that are still denying caregivers access. Um, if you look at uh, the group homes in developmental services, uh, if you look at uh, retirement homes um, where seniors live, um, their guidance is different than the guidance for long-term care um, and is actually very punitive. So in developmental services, they talk about the need for everyone, including the resident, to keep a mask on, um, which is not feasible uh, for many people that have developmental or intellectual disabilities who also have sensory processing disorder. To keep a mask on is just not something that's going, um, that they're going to be able to do. Um, they talk about physical distancing, um, and if you don't stay your, your, your safe distance, um, that the caregiver could be denied access. Um, they talk about caregivers, designated caregivers, not being able to use um, the washrooms in the group homes um, because the resident could then lose access to their designated caregiver. That caregiver could be denied access into the home. Um, many group homes now um, have already announced that they're going back to outdoor visits only as it's getting colder outside. Um, same with, with long-term care homes. Um, there really is no guidance for, um, for when you're talking about uh, in the youth justice system, when you're talking about, um, for instance, children's aids. I'm proud to say that down here in Windsor-Essex, yeah. um, our children's aid was one of the first to speak out and say that you know, their goal is to, to reunify families and to facilitate that process. Um, and during the lockdown, uh, any of, of that work had stopped. So the youth that they had in care um, were not able to do visits with mom or dad or, or brothers or sisters or other family members. They couldn't do that in, in person. Um, and that really made it very difficult to, to provide the services needed in order to keep um, those families together and to reunify those families um, to get those children out of care and back into home. Um, it's, it's really sector-wide across the hospitals, yeah. in the hospitals. Um, people are still being, in some cases, um, not being allowed to have their designated caregivers in unless it's for end of life. Um, and I mean, it's, it really is, there's many different sectors that are affected by this. Yes. And within 
the 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 structure of what this, of that sets up how the strategy is to be developed it also talks about the importance of addressing each individual sector so it's not um it's not a strategy that would be um put out across all of those sectors because that's that's not good enough. It has to be specific to those sectors. It's not one size fits all. So that has to be part of the strategy. And if that means that the individuals at the table decide that they need to do um, separate work, like do, do some work together, but then also separate into the various sectors to set up the strategy specific to their sectors, um, then that would be their, their right to do so under the legislation. No, absolutely. And that's, that's definitely what is needed. And now for family members, what we need to, to be able to do to continue to make sure that the government does hear um, and to make sure that this bill does get passed, what would you suggest? What would you indicate that we still, that we now do to make sure that this government does hear the voice? I would reach out to the MPPs. Um, so even if you have a member, a sitting MPP who's from the same party as I am, that's a new Democrat, you can still write to them. Um, they log those stories and those are stories that they can share in the house. Um, you know, it's always much more impactful when we can, when we can bring the, the names of the people that are impacted and share that with the, with the government. Um, but they should be contacting the government members as well. Um, email the government members. If you're on social media, uh, tweet out to them or post something on their Facebook. And if you're writing to the government members, um, I would suggest like if you're emailing them um, to copy myself or one of my, my NDP colleagues, okay. if, if your MPP is a, is a new Democrat, um, copy, copy us as well so that we can see that you've emailed the government okay. and who you've emailed. Um, my suggestion is always write to the premier write to the Minister of Health, the Minister of Children, Community and Social Services, the Associate Minister for Mental Health and Addictions, the Minister of Long-Term Care, um, the Attorney General. Um, you know, I would, I would I was write as many of the Conservative government members as possible and, and copy a new Democrat, and I can okay. be that new Democrat since it's my bill, telling them that we need to get this bill called to committee. They need to call the bill to committee so that we can get it through quickly and get it back in the House, and then more importantly, once it's back in the house for them to support it again. They supported it at second reading um, and it's really important that they support it at third reading so that it, it, it can become legislation really quickly and, and, and uh, those changes that need to be made can get implemented. Um, you know, we, we, the other thing I would suggest too is, um, this just came to, to my head is we have um, so many people that write to my office or tag me on social media or call my office about homes that are um, whatever in whatever sector and whatever setting that are that are denying residents or patients um, access to their um, caregivers and um, a lot of people don't they're, they're either afraid to push back or they just don't know to push back and our advice is always print off the guidelines the most recent guidelines again they're not legislation it's not a directive but send them the guidelines and, and let them know that these are the guidelines and, and the guidelines state that is like in long-term care, that regardless of whether or not there is an outbreak, that that resident has the right to have access to their designated caregiver. And if they're not willing to fi uh, follow that guidance, why are they not following that guidance? What reasoning is behind them not doing it? Um, and through that, 
we may be able to gather some information. In some cases, the homes back down and they say, you know what, you're right, the guidance has changed. We'll, we'll uh, certainly allow those, those uh, visits and interactions to take place again. Um, and in other cases, maybe they'll, they will explain, we don't have enough staff. We don't have enough PPE to do this. We, we, we don't, we're not able to do the screening that needs to, to happen, or we don't have um, the, the staffing in place to be able to do the infection prevention and control measures. Um, and that's really, that is such valuable information for us so that we can raise with the government again, um, where there are struggling homes and, and the very real impacts of the government not um, stepping up and investing, um, not specifically in these homes, but the residents, yes. the individuals in, in them. It's an, in, it's an investment, uh, into the people that are, that are, um, that are living in, in these congregate hair settings. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I agree, uh, wholeheartedly and definitely I'll be putting that out, um, on our, um, uh, social media to be able to, 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 let, to let everybody know that, yes, to contact the government, contact um, and make sure to copy in the, the individuals um, that are needed to in order to affect this change. So this bill does become an act and it does become the, the, the law here in Ontario. Yep. So and I just wanted to... Sorry, for the, for the, I was just going to say for the individuals that are concerned um, or afraid, to, to speak up um, because they're afraid there's going to be some repercussion on the on the other side and and in some cases that that has been the case um, we my office are always open to raising the concerns directly with the home without saying who has raised the issue with okay. us so okay. if we know that people are being um, residents are being denied access and we don't believe that it's it, that it if we believe it is contradictory to the guidance that is out there, um, then then we're happy to receive those stories and 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 share them and and push for change without saying who gave us that information. Okay. And there is such an incredible network of people who have come together, um, who who will push on a regular basis. I, I have to give a uh, special mention to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, mm -hmm. who is um, a fierce advocate and an expert um, in caregiving. Um, and, um, and, and she teaches uh, about caregiving. And um, she, is she is fierce. Yes. So if she hears a story, um, she calls them her families. Yes. Um, and if she hears a story about uh, a home that is not following the guidance, um, or, or um, you know, there's a problem within that home. She is one of the first people who will pick up the phone and call them out um, and and uh, push them to to change direction and do better. Um, and she does that without naming families yeah. as well. And this is it's there's such an incredible network of people from all of the sectors that would be impacted by uh, the More Than a Visitor Act um, that nobody should feel like they're in this alone, um, that they've got to shoulder this fight alone because there are, there are those of us that you can reach out to to support you and, and to um, do the loud advocacy Absolutely. <laughs> that, needs to, that needs to take place. Absolutely. No, th that's great because, I mean, retaliation and the fear is very, very real for a lot of families. So that is good to know that they have other alternate uh, avenues to be able to still effectively communicate and to be able to 
advocate for their loved ones in long-term care or any other congregate settings without the fear of retaliation to them or to their loved ones. So that's really great. And again, I just want to thank you again for coming on. And hopefully once this does become an act, an official uh, law here in the province that you can come back on and then be able to, you know, talk again about that journey to see what else is going on because uh, I'm sure a lot of things will continue to change everything is very dynamic during this uh, pandemic uh, things change you know daily if not hourly sometimes so um, but we greatly appreciate um, you know what you have done in terms of bringing this motion it's you know getting it to this point and then hopefully it will become uh, an official bill and an, an official act within this province so thank you thank you it took a it took a, a very big village yeah. um of very fierce people to get yes. it to the point where it is now and um i have the complete confidence that that village will help get it across the, the finish line as well and, and get it to, to become law okay perfect thank you so much thank you you're welcome Thank you for listening to this episode and hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please leave a comment as we would love to hear your feedback. Please follow us on Twitter at Family Councils and Facebook at Family Councils Collaborative Alliance. Again, thank you.